Uh, we have so much happening in life our church right now that um, man, we've got a leadership axiom among our elders and our staff. What we say is that clarity produces unity. More clarity, more unity, less clarity, less unity. So we've got so much happening at Life for Church right now. I need to hit a couple things to keep us on the same page as we have some huge stuff um, coming down the pike for us at church. So two quick things. Um, and let me cover them over here. One, um, at the beginning of every semester, uh, we've got something where we call our entire church to a season of prayer. And some of you guys uh, just make it a season of prayer and fasting. The reason that we do this, one of my favorite guys that I read in college, a guy named A.W. Tozer, um, he said, if you remove the Holy Spirit from 95% of churches, no one would notice. And uh, we absolutely refuse for that to be the case. We need a power outside of ourselves um, that can reach inside of the chests of men and change them. And so um, at the beginning of each semester, we call the entire church to bathe everything that we do in, uh, in prayer. And so if you uh, missed this last week on your way out, stop by the resources table, grab that 21 days prayer guide. And every day we all as an entire church uh, pray over one area of our church to bathe everything uh, in prayer for these, fir- these first three weeks. Um, I also want to say um, on Tuesdays, the three Tuesdays of 21 days, we have churchwide prayer and worship gatherings at 6.30 on those Tuesdays. There's two more of those. If you have never been to one of those, they are the six most powerful gatherings we have all year. Uh, so man, if you can hit that, uh, that's, that's coming up Tuesday. So that's one. And then two, um, on your way in, you may have noticed uh, Pastor Matt talked about uh, the goofy mule, uh, mule t-shirts. Here's what's going on, guys. We need to celebrate this. We are launching the Columbia campus in less than two months. Uh, that's happening right now, man. That's right. Golf clap. A couple golf claps. That's good. Uh, we're excited about that. And uh, the reason we're excited is because uh, we just feel like uh, we live in an area that is, we say, overchurched and undergospeled. And we've got news. We got good news that needs to go to the ends of the earth. And so uh, here's what's going on. On those t-shirts, there are 226 mules, Mule Town, get it? And uh, that's what we're doing. Right now, we've got, uh, we need 226 existing bridgers to step forward and say, I will make the Columbia campus my campus for 2018. Um, and so, man, here's what I'd say. We've got over 500 Columbia people that have been driving up here. Even if you live up here, you can drive there for one year. You can do it, okay? So if you would do that, that would be uh, absolutely amazing. Fill that dude out during the boring parts of the sermon and then just drop that in the gray boxes on your way out. And that'd be amazing. And this is what that card uh, looks like in the seat in front of you right here, okay? All right, here's where we are today. We're in the second week of a series that we're just calling Religion Saves and Other Misconceptions. And uh, man, the reason we're doing this is it's really funny. Um, I've always noticed that people avoid failure. They're terrified of failure. Uh, but misconceptions are exponentially more dangerous than failure. Uh, you will learn from failure. You'll live by a misconception. And so each week what we're doing is we're taking like one of these soul critical misconceptions that people have about God um, or the gospel or just uh, truth. And we're bringing the scriptures to bear on one each week. Um, this message, uh, heads up, this message is A, a little heavy, um, and B, extremely personal um, to me and my family. And, and you'll see why that is. But if you've got your Bibles, let's get right into it in John chapter 9, and, uh, and we'll roll from there because the misconception is in the text. So let me read it. This is John chapter 9. 
And he, Jesus, passed by. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, now listen, because here comes the misconception. His disciple asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Now that's the misconception, and you'll see what I'm talking about. You get into any type of pain, or you see pain in somebody else's life, and all of us want to go there. Who sinned? Obviously, sin caused this. Who sinned? Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. Having said these things, he, I know this is really weird, but there's a lot of meaning in this, okay? Having said these things, he spat on the ground. That's weird. Why do you do that? And made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed, that's a really important word, anointed, uh, because it indicates divine purpose. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing, okay? Now, you may have noticed this. The misconception is buried in this text, but let me, if if you're not picking up on it yet, um, let me kind of get it into you. Um, If you've ever known somebody with a serious disability, you may know that when somebody loses the use of one of their five senses, um, all of the other five senses sort of elevate. So if you know somebody who loses their sense of hearing, uh, they develop an incredibly keen eyesight and touch and smell. Um, if, you lose some, if somebody loses their sense of sight, like this man, uh, they develop an incredibly keen sense of hearing. Um, so I, for a second, what I want you to do is I just want you to put yourself in the position of this man who was blind from birth. And I want you to understand that his entire life, he would have heard things around him that other people didn't think that he could hear. And so I, I want you to think about um, the whispers that he would have heard. Um, all his life, he would have heard these whispers. <laughs> Who sinned? Uh, what must this guy have done that God cursed him with blindness? I wonder what he did. Um, or they had uh, a misconception that sometimes it was because of the sin of the parents. So he would have heard, what must his mother have done? She must have been unfaithful. Or uh, the whisper, man, what did his dad do that the head of the family was cursed with a son? that couldn't see who sinned, who sent him or his parents. Now, here's what's really interesting. Um, Some of you who have walked through some hard seasons of life, um, you've heard the same whispers, haven't you? Um, You've gotten into those seasons uh, when marriage is really hard, and people around you can tell, and you start to hear some chatter, some whispers. Man, man, he seems miserable. I wonder what type of wife she is. Or man, um, their parents, uh, your kids, let's say your kids are having a really hard season and you start to kind of pick up on this sense of people around you, man, their kids are really struggling. I wonder what type of parents they are behind closed doors. There must be things that we can't see. Um, Or you get laid off from work and you kind of get the sense that the whispers start, man, I wonder what he's like at the office. But listen, there's something worse um, than hearing it from people around you, isn't there? Because some of you who have walked through painful seasons, what starts to happen is the whispers start, start to come from, the, from your heart, don't they? It's like, man, you get into a season where like, man, everybody around you is healthy, but you get the cancer diagnosis. And all of a sudden you start to wonder, man, is my cancer because I used to? Or is God not healing me because I didn't? 
Um, or you're, you're not on your first miscarriage, you're on your third or your fifth miscarriage. And the whisper that starts to rise in your heart is, is this because of mistakes I made when I was in college? Is God doing this to me because of what I did in high school? Is that who sinned? Who sinned? Was it me? Okay. Now listen, what Jesus does in this passage is he blows up this misconception. And, and listen, what's under this misconception, what's under the whispers is this misconception. Listen, the misconception that you have, listen, is that sin and suffering are cause and effect. We all are born with that misconception. More sin, more suffering. Less sin, less suffering. That's what's underneath that misconception. Now, if you don't understand this, what I would show you is that that misconception, it it welds itself even to our most basic understandings of Christianity. So for instance, this is fascinating to me. What happens every single time there's a big natural disaster and a city is swallowed by a flood? You know what happens? Some like drunk uncle Christian leader gets on CNN. It was because of all the gay people and Democrats, you know, that kind of thing. I was like, where do they find that guy? But what everyone wants to do is try and find a connection between sin and suffering. Or uh, you get into painful seasons of life. And what do people say? People say things like, oh, you reap what you sow. Uh, or somebody has uh, something really good happen in their life. What's somebody say? Well, he's living right. God's fair. Um, things go bad, that kind of thing. And uh, people say things like, man, what goes around comes around. Karma, right? That's what we say. Now, what I want you to see is that it's that misconception that undergirds every single one of those statements. The misconception that sin produces suffering. More sin, more suffering. Less sin, less suffering. Now, here's what's fascinating. Jesus, at least twice, directly confronts and repudiates this exact misconception. One is right here in our text today. But Bible scholars have noticed for centuries that you can't understand John 9 until you lay it on top of Luke 13. Now, let me do this. and I'm going to read the passage, and it, but I need to give some context. So this is so interesting to me. Where this misconception comes out the most is when there's a natural disaster. It's like everybody wants to make the connection. So this happened in Jesus' time. There was a time where a tower fell in a city called Salome. A tower fell on 18 people in the midst of a crowd. Big crowd, 18 people die. Tower falls. People come to Jesus and they start whispering, Jesus, who sinned? Was it because these people were worse sinners than all the rest? Tell us, Jesus, sin equals suffering. What did they do? Now listen, I'm going to read you Jesus' response. Look at what he does, because it's, it's honestly, it's very theological. So I'm going to draw some points out here. This is, this is Luke 13, 3 and 4. Jesus says, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Here's the question. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Question mark. Now Jesus says, no, and we could go, oh, very simple answer, no. But it's a little more complex than that. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Why did he say that? Why did he say, nope, they weren't worse sinners, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's knitting the answer to this question back to the theology of the entire Bible. So here's what Jesus is doing. 
The Bible tells a story that nothing in this world right now is as it should be. This world is broken. Uh, This is not in the words of Voltaire, Candide, that you had to read in high school, the best of all possible worlds. This right now is actually like the worst of all possible worlds because we're in the catastrophe moment in the middle of the best of all possible stories. So right now, nothing works as it's supposed to work in this world. So originally, the world was created with everything good. Uh, There was worship, but no idolatry. There was sex, but no lust. There was marriage, but no infidelity. There was drink, but no alcoholism. There was food, but no gluttony. You could go, everything was perfect. No suffering, no tears, no sin, right? But then there came a moment where mankind as a human race said, no, 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 thank you. We will live as we please. And we rebelled against our heavenly father who was good to us and gave us good gifts. And ever since then, it's just like in an office when you put a terrible manager in charge of a team, everything goes haywire. What we've done is we've put ourselves in the managerial position of the world, and right now, everything is going haywire. So that right now, nothing works as it's supposed to work, all right? So here's what Jesus is doing when he says, nope, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I'm going to do a little theology with you right here, but track with me. I'm trusting you can grasp this. What Jesus is saying is that there is a connection between collective sin and collective suffering when it comes to the suffering of the entire human race. In other words, he's saying, as a human race, we are all worthy of towers falling on us. But in another sense, there is not a connection between individual sin and individual suffering because nothing in this world works as it's supposed to, including the allocation of suffering. Uh, The Bible says this is a world in which sometimes the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. All right, so listen guys, let me boil this down to its most basic form. A lot of times even Christians will start to knit the concept of karma into our own worldview. Let me just address this head on. The Bible teaches uh, that the operative principle of the kingdom of God is not karma, it's grace. And grace is the opposite of karma, okay? Karma says you get what you deserve. Grace is the good news, you get what you don't deserve. Karma says you reap what you sow, Grace is we reap what Jesus has sown. Karma says good things happen to good people and bad things happen to uh, bad people. Grace is the story of good things happening to bad people. See, it's totally different, right? So that's the misconception. Jesus blows it up. Now, here's what I know. I know that when you get into a season of pain, what happens is that that's not enough for you. Uh, We get into seasons of pain, and the question we want to ask is why? God, I need answers. Why is this happening to me? Why did you allow this? What this passage does is it shows us that God doesn't always give us answers because answers aren't what we most need. Uh, What the Lord does is in his good heart for us, he gives us assurances. And assurances are what we need. Okay, So what this gives us two. There are two assurances that you need to be able to walk through pain and suffering in a way that makes us more like Jesus and makes us who God designed us to be. So here's what they are, okay? Here's what they are, uh, uh, assurance one and assurance two. Now, look down at the passage, and if you'll check out it's, uh, this, the weird part of the passage, you'll look down at the passage in verse, it's six. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Uh, when I read this, pa- I'll be really honest, when I read this passage, that's the part I'm like, I don't, what is going on? What's the deal with the spitting? Uh, it's not at all the image of Jesus. Uh, that come, I, don't, I don't hear the word Jesus and think, oh, you know, that's not what comes to mind. I don't, 
But in this, that's what happens. You know, Jesus spits in the mud, mud on the eye. What is going on here, okay? Um, let me explain this. Uh, to give, for you to understand this, you have to understand the context that it, Jesus is ministering in. If you go back just one page to the end of John 8, uh, what happened is Jesus was confronted with some, uh, some guys named Pharisees. And they did not believe that Jesus was God. In fact, they were passionately uh, accusing him of blasphemy because they said, Jesus, you, a man, are making yourself equal with God. Not only does Jesus not deny being equal with God, Jesus takes it a step further. uh, And he says about these men's hero, these men uh, had Abraham as a hero. And he says, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And when he says, I am, he's taking the very name of God from Exodus. Uh, God said he was the great I am. So he doubles down. He says, before Abraham was, I am, claiming to be God. Now, these guys freak out, and Jesus is still holding on. Now, think about this. These Pharisees are here who are furiously denying that Jesus is God. They're accusing him of blasphemy. They're still watching when Jesus passes by this blind man. So why the loogie? Why? Why does he do this? Well, let me ask you this question. Do you remember another time in the Bible when God created out of dust? I do. In Genesis 1, how does the Bible tell us God created man? What it says is that he took the dust of the earth and breathed life into it. And out of the dust of the ground, he made man, male and female. He made them, okay? So now, think about this. Fast forward to John chapter 9. Jesus is here. He's standing in front of people who are denying that he's God. He bends down to the earth and he takes dust and he puts it on this man's eyes. And out of the dust of the earth, he creates sight. And I imagine that he's looking at the Pharisees as if to say, I have done this before. He's showing that he is God. And it's exactly on the canvas of this man's disability that Jesus paints one of his greatest masterpieces. And then listen to what he says. And this is the assurance that God gives you. He says, this didn't happen because this man sinned. It happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Here's assurance number one. You have to have this if you're going to make it through seasons of pain. Assurance number one is your pain has a purpose. Whatever pain you ever go through, your pain has a purpose. Now, here's the spot in the sermon where I know that you're going to be tempted to check out on me, all right? Especially you guys who are a little more cerebral, because right now, what you might be thinking is, now, wait a second, Josh. That's actually why a lot of people don't believe in God. And what you're thinking about is um, it's something that uh, philosophers call theodicy, um, or they call it the problem of evil, um, how could a good God allow suffering? There's, it comes from an ancient uh, Greek philosopher, a guy named Epicurus, who he just stated it like this, and this may be where some of you are at. He said, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Okay? Now, here's what's fascinating. That may be where some of you are at. And I don't mean this in any way, in any disrespect. This is how a lot of people think. At the same time, here's what's interesting. Uh, The last time that a philosopher in our country used this argument to discredit belief in God uh, in a public academic peer-reviewed journal. Do you know when it was? 
It was 1982, the year Thriller came out, to put that in perspective for some of you. That, that's how long it's been. Now, do, you, do you know why it's been that long? Because this argument has been almost totally discredited as being a logical reason for unbelief. Do you know why? People have figured out that underneath that, the logic of the argument, uh, the arguer is smuggling in a hidden assumption that is obviously untrue. Do you know what the hidden assumption is? The hidden assumption is if I can't see a reason for which God would allow the evil in the world, then there must not be a reason or there could not be a reason that God would allow this evil and suffering in the world. Now, listen, guys, we all know that that's not true. Think about this. Uh, if, uh, if, uh, if God is the size of an ocean and our minds are the size of, size of a Coke can, there should be some things that we expect to not fit in our minds. Uh, if God is large enough to control the evil and suffering in the world, then he is also large enough to have reasons for allowing it that our small minds cannot comprehend. It's possible that our pain actually does have a purpose and that we just can't see it in the moment where we are. Now, listen, I said earlier this uh, message was extremely personal to my family. Uh, that's true because this passage, John 9, Jan and I have wept a lot of tears over John 9. Uh, John 9 was our comforter in the hardest season of our marriage. And um, here's uh, Janice in my story. By the way, uh, you guys, you go to the 11. You guys never see Jana. Jana's at the 8. Um, so if you don't know Jana, this is, let me show you who Jana is. Let me just kind of, I show my kids all the time. This is who Jana is. If you ever see her, say hi. Uh, this is Jana. This is the Jana-approved picture that I'm allowed to show of Jana. In the, so this is her wind, you know, blowing her beautiful hair in a New York vineyard or whatever. That's Jana. Uh, this is, if you've never gotten to hang out with Jana, uh, she just has this infectious happiness, uh, and she just loves people. Jana is a way better person than me. She should never have married me. And uh, this is, just to give you a little picture of who Jana is, uh, two years ago on our 10-year anniversary, we saved up all our pennies and went to Europe to see some church history stuff. While we were in Paris, we were standing in front of the Moulin Rouge and just messing around. I, I held the camera up and I said, hey, Janet, make a sexy face. And this is what she did. She went, no, that's not, that's not, just not in her. She just couldn't do it. That, that's Janet. If you ever see Janet, say hi. Uh, Janet, she's just an incredibly happy person. Um, what a lot of people don't know is uh, Janet and I, first five years of our marriage, uh, Janet was not always a super happy person. And he, here's our story. And we got married young, and we really badly, we wanted to be that couple who was like 22 with two kids, and we were done. That was us. So we got in, and we immediately started trying. And, uh, and it, you know, what happened to us was uh, one month, you know, we got through the first month, like, oh, man, it didn't work. Um, and then one month uh, turned into three months. And then three months turned into six months, and six months turned into a year. And one year turned into three years. Um, and then three years turned into five years. And uh, when we got in, what we realized is that we struggle with what doctors call, this is a very helpful term, they call it unexplained infertility. And uh, what that means is that they've tested everything about Jana, and she looks fine. Uh, they've tested everything about me, and I look fine. Uh, and it, it ain't for lack of trying, if you know what I mean. Because that's, uh, just get real honest with you. And uh, so we just got in, and it was us. Um, and here, here's the thing about uh, infertility. There's about 10% of you in the room who understand this. Um, it's a really, really weird type of pain. Um, because what you're doing is you're mourning somebody that you've never met. You're mourning a person that doesn't exist. 
Um, and what happens is, especially for a woman, it's like every month uh, there's, a, there's a new grief. And uh, when you're 21 or 22 and you can't have kids, what's happening is you're seeing all of your friends are getting pregnant, just rapid fire. And what happens to you is you are excited for them, um, but their gain is also a reminder of your loss. And so it's like you're excited, but you're also hurting. And then, especially for Janie, you start to feel guilt that you're not more excited. Um, and then on top of it, um, you're always hearing these stories uh, about friends who are sad because they went on their honeymoon and they got pregnant in one try and they're sad. And you're like, man, I would give anything for that to happen to me. Or you hear stories about um, uh, teenagers who get, have one night stands and they get pregnant and they have abortions. And you're like, man, I just don't understand. Like, we would do any, I'll be, to get really real with you, like, this is such self-righteousness that flowed out of our hearts. But we were just like, God, why would you do this? Like, we are faithful to you. We love you. We are giving our lives in service of your kingdom. And we would steer our children towards the Lord. And then the, there's the pregnant teenager has a one-night stand, and their kid's going to be a drug, drug, drug addict in six years. And they, so we're just like, God, why? And that was our question, like, why, 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 why? And uh, I'll be honest, when we were in it, we could not see any reason that God would allow that to happen to us. But you know what I know now? Now, we over and over and over again, Jana and I will look at each other before bed um, after a, a long, beautiful day. And we will look back on those five years and we'll say, I'm so glad that happened. I'm so glad it happened. Do you know why? Because now I can creep upstairs and creep into the bedrooms of my two adopted daughters and I wouldn't trade 100 biological children for those two kids. Um, the I tell Jana this all the time, all the time. The adoption culture at the bridge has largely, I, don't, I, think, I hope this doesn't sound bad, but it's been influenced and inspired a lot by Jana's heart. And I go home, and every time I hear about a new adoption, I remind Jana that adoption was born in the womb of your pain. Babe, that happened because of you. Um, or Jana, there are people sitting in this room right now, dear friends of ours, who you have walked through seasons of infertility and loss. And Jana has met you in our living room, and she's been able to give you a word in season that you needed. Do you know why? Because she was afflicted so that you might be comforted. And now, 12 years later, we look back, and do you know what we understand? That happened so that the works of God might be displayed in you. There was purpose in that pain. And no matter what pain you are experiencing in this room, do you know that I can tell you that with confidence? Your pain has a purpose. It does have a purpose. It doesn't mean you can see it, but your pain has a purpose. What this means is that you can stand. I'm just going to give you like my prayer. This, this is stuff like out of my journals. This means that you can stand in front of God and you can pray things like this. God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't know why you're letting this happen to me, but I know you. I don't know what it is, but I know this pain has a purpose. I'm, uh, this, ha this pain has, I might lose my job, I might lose my health, I might lose my life, but I'll never lose your love. God, I'm not spending my energy on why it's happening. I'm spending my energy on who is with me while it's happening. I don't have answers, so I'm leaning in to your assurance. 
God is for me. He's not against me. This pain has a purpose, so my fear can turn into faith. Though sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. I consider that these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in me. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory beyond compare. He who began a good work in me will carry it to completion. God, you're my blacksmith. If I am struck, it's because you're forging something. And he is doing that for you, your pain has a purpose. That's assurance number one. Now listen, here's assurance number two, and it's shorter. <laughs> I promise. It's shorter. Okay, now uh, let me set this one up. Um, especially assurance number two is one you need. Let me just say this. The more Bible nerdy you are, the higher the probability is that you need assurance number two. Because what a lot of people do is they confuse the doctrine of God's sovereignty, that God is in control of all things, which is true, They confuse that to believe that everything in the world is happening in a way that is most pleasing to God. Uh, That is the almost the exact opposite in one sense. Understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. In one sense, that is almost the exact opposite of the Bible. The Bible is not teaching that right now we are in the best of all possible worlds. The Bible is teaching that we are in the midst of the, the, the worst of all possible worlds because we're in the midst of, we're in the catastrophe moment of the best of all possible stories. That's what the Bible's teaching, all right? So listen, I'll give you an example of this. Um, my grandpa Hemingway, the one that lives up in New York, I talk about all the time, 10 years ago, his wife died and he was standing next to her grave and his, he asked his minister in a moment of extreme agony, why did God allow this to happen? Now, let me, before I finish the story, well, this story means there's a minister in New York that I would like to lay a finger on. If you know. What happened is this, this minister told him, here's why this happened. He said, why did this happen? And the minister's response was, well, that's just the way that God wanted things to be. Now, when he told me that story, I wanted to scream. You know why I wanted to scream? Because every time Jesus encounters pain in the Bible, he either mourns it or eliminates it. God opposes and was willing to die in order to undo all of the pain and suffering in this world. It's not his friend. Death is the last what? The last enemy of the Christian to be destroyed, all right? So listen, what this means is that your pain will not be permanent. This man goes home, how? He goes home seeing So the assurance that gives us is that no matter what pain you experience, no matter how long it lasts, your pain is not permanent. Jesus will undo this. Now, here's where this comes from, all right? You guys know how in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the assurance. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, it's one of my favorite verses. It says, for in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But then it says, but each in its own order. First Christ, the first fruits, that's weird, And then all the rest of us at his coming. Now, why? I always love it. Why does the Bible call the resurrection of Jesus the first fruits? Do you know why it says that? Um, Every fall, there comes this one day. It's like my favorite day of the year where I walk out of my front door and I see it. I see that spring's first fruits. And what I see is the first flower that pushes its way up through the soil. And every time I see it, I think of 1 Corinthians 15 with a smile on my face. Do you, know, do you know what you know? As soon as you see that first flower burst through the soil, do you know what you know? All the rest are coming behind it. 
every other one is coming behind it. It's a promise. And what the Bible's saying is that the resurrection of Jesus, it was a promise. We look at the undoing of Jesus' death, and what we know is all the rest are coming behind it. We look at that one sad thing that came untrue, and we have assurance all the rest are coming behind it. Listen, um, if you're in the middle of a season like this, you may right now, you may be going, man, but how do I know? You know, how do I know God is for me? How do I know that he'll, how do I know the pain has a purpose? How do I know that the pain isn't permanent? Um, you guys realize, so in this passage, what they said about the blind man is they said, this guy isn't suffering because he sinned. He's suffering so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You guys know that in just a few chapters, there's going to be another man who was suffering. And what we will say about him is he didn't suffer because he sinned. He suffered so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Do you know who that man was? Jesus. Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't suffering because he sinned. He suffered so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What that means is that no matter what you ever experience, God understands. He he totally understands. Um, I like to think of it like this. So some of you guys... You know, we're told in the Bible that Jesus stood at his best friend's grave weeping in John 11. You know, if you have ever experienced the loss of someone that you held very dear, do you know that Jesus can truly say, I totally understand. I am so sorry. Um, you remember the last thing that Jesus cried out from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His heavenly father cut him off in that moment. Um, Do you know if you've ever experienced the excruciating pain of one of your parents abandoning you? Do you understand that Jesus himself can say, I totally understand. I'm so sorry. I'm in this with you. He can say that. Uh, We never think about this. Um, You realize Jesus died single? Jesus went his entire life watching all his friends get married and have kids, and he never did. And so if that becomes your life story, do you know that your Savior can truly say, I get it. it. It hurts so bad, doesn't it? And I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, you guys know how, this is one of my favorites. You know how the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ? And then it says that Jesus was like a groom. <laughs> Do you realize that God himself knows what it's like to have your spouse cheat on you? If you have ever experienced that unbelievable pain, Do you know that Jesus can truly say to you, I get it, I'm with you. It hurts so bad and I'm going to undo it. Now listen, you know, here's what all that means. Jesus was willing to do that for you because he loves you. He loves you that much. That's how much he loves you. Now here's what that means. It means you may not know the reason for every specific pain in your life but you will always know what the reason can't be. It can't be because he doesn't love you. Now you may be going, man, Josh, but that's only half the answer. You're right. But that's the half that we need. That's the half that we need to be able to make it through, all right? So let's press in. Let's press in to the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. God was willing and pleased to crush him so that we might be brought in, all right? I wanna pray that into us. So Richmond, will you pray with me? Sermon's a little heavy. And so, Holy Spirit, I welcome you into the room, even right now as I pray for you to be our great comforter and high priest. Would you please right now, um, would you 
afflict the comfortable uh, with our great need to run to you in repentance? And would you comfort the afflicted? Uh, Would you be a tender high priest, Um, a bruised reed he did not break, a smoldering wick he does not snuff out, Uh, but he sets the captives free. Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so, Father, would you give rest to suffering souls? Father, would you help us and up, uh, would you undergird us in our faith to continue entrusting to you um, our souls, even when we don't understand? God, make us into people who trust your heart, even when we don't understand your hand. Give us Revelation 21 hearts in this Genesis 3 world. Uh, Father, we love you and we lean into you. We praise you as one willing to be crushed for our sake. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.